Charlotte Gray is one of Canada's best-known writers and biographers and the award-winning author of several bestsellers, including Reluctant Genius, The Passions and Inventions of Alexander Graham Bell, Mrs. King, The Life and Times of Isabel Mackenzie King, and Sisters in the Wilderness, The Lives of Susanna Moody and Catherine Parr Trail. An adjunct research professor in the Department of History at Carleton University, Gray sits on the boards of both the Dominion Institute and the Canadian National History Society, Charlotte and her husband live in Ottawa. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Very nice to be with you. We're here in Ottawa to talk about your extraordinary Canadian biography of uh, Nellie McClung. You talk about two waves of feminist movement, feminist efforts, one in, in the 20s and one in the 60s. Why the gap? That is such a good question, and it's also a question I like because you have to fit movement towards achieving expanded rights for women within the larger context of the history of the 20th century. What happened was that in the early 20th century, Canada was changing from being a strictly agricultural country to being a much more urban, industrialized economy. And that kind of sort of changing of the gears within a society always produces huge intellectual and political and social change. And that created the first wave of feminism, which was Nellie McClung's wave of feminism. And there were a lot of basic rights that had to be established at that point, including obviously the right to vote and the right to sit in the Senate and the right to run for Parliament. And all those movements in which Nellie was intimately involved. The last great high spot of Nellie's career as a feminist was 1929, the person's case, when she and four other women achieved the right for women to sit in the Senate, which involved a massive change in the British North America Act. Mm, Looking at it as a a living tree. That's right. Uh, When the judicial establishment within Canada was forced by the Privy Council Office in London to sort of take the blinkers off and realize that women were persons and should have the same rights as men. So that was huge. And it seemed like it was going to open the door to all kinds of changes. But remember the date, 1929. What else happened in 1929? The uh, stock market crash, which in fact brought so many things to a grinding halt, including economic change, because uh, it initiated the Depression. We went from the Depression into the Second World War. Again, you know, everybody's eyes were elsewhere. It was focusing on survival, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. Sort of a fundamental, obviously, concern. That's right. Yeah. And it's only in the 1960s that, you know, all those basic survival questions had been answered and the next wave of feminism could take off because people generally, but women in particular, realized there was still... Uh, many battles to be fought if women were to gain equality. So Nellie McClung uh, was born in Ontario and sort of in the country, rural Canada, moved to Manitoba, again rural. I just wonder what was it that was bugging her? Why did she have this chip on her shoulder, a bee in her A bee in her bonnet? bonnet? She was a very strong personality from birth she emerged as somebody who was going to take on the world. And so it's interesting to contrast her with her siblings, none of whom seemed to have that sort of burning, crusading zeal that she always had. Mm. And she also, I think perhaps thanks to 
some of the adults around her when she was growing up developed a strong sense of justice. Her father would complain about uh, the CPR and Central Canada's disregard for Western needs. Her, she had a great teacher who suggested to her that uh, the First Nations on the prairies had rights. She began to see that you know questions weren't simple. Justice was important. Justice was important. And so she grew up a farm girl. I mean, I think it's amazing that she, did, she couldn't read when she was 10. Yeah. She then said... I'll read within three months, didn't she? And boy, was she reading within three months. I mean, you can see that this is a woman of great intellectual energy. You know, that drive and that sense of in injustice are what really drove her. You talk about nature and nurture. Just some of us have this drive and others don't. I mean, even within the same family. That's right. You know, and I mean, her, her mother, who was this sort of pretty harsh disciplinarian, obviously found, you know, she and Nellie were probably equally strong personalities and they clashed like anything whereas the mother I think found the other children more amenable and perhaps the other children sort of found it easier just to go along. Mm -hmm. Nellie would have a fight about anything. But it wasn't just that she was pugnacious for pugnacity's sake. She always had great friends too. She was a girl who just sort of saw how things should be and was determined to get there. She was intelligent enough to quickly grasp concepts, issues. Then she studied to become a teacher and by all accounts was a wonderful, inspiring teacher at a young age. I know. I mean, you think of her, age 10 she can't read, age 17 she's in a school, a one-room schoolroom with some of the kids older than her. But she had a good sense of humor, a wonderful sense of fun. The worst year of my life was the year I taught. And I realized that anything would be easier than teaching. Teaching is very, very demanding, very hard work. And you have to be a performer. You have to be almost sort of on stage throughout the school day. From your perspective, what makes that so hard is just you have to be on all the time. You have to be on all the time. Uh, you have, you to, have be to be an good at discipline because I, I was in a very rough school. You have to be an extrovert and you have to believe in what you're doing. By the end of the school year, I didn't believe in what I was doing. I'd lost all control of the class. And, you know, I, I, I think I'd become a complete introvert. <laughs> well, you talk about Nellie's desire for the spotlight. Mm -hmm. And so that's obviously another part of the, the puzzle that she loved to perform. She loved to win. She loved to perform. She had a strong sense of theatre. And those are all qualities that serve you very well in both the classroom and in politics. I'm just listening to a, a book on Churchill mm -hmm. and Churchill's early desire to be famous. Would you say that she shared that? She was determined to make her mark. She was not She was not going to just sort of pass through this world and not in some ways, I can't remember the exact phrase she uses, make it a better world. She wanted to improve lives, so it was an altruistic impulse, but she wanted her name in lights. There was some criticism of her later on when she wasn't elected the first woman to the Senate. There was someone who was much Wilson. I think. Yes, Corrine Wilson. I mean, Mackenzie King, who in fact in some ways had uh, supported Nellie, he uh, encouraged her and her, her four colleagues in 1929 when they were having the battle uh, over the person's case but he still really didn't want somebody quite as noisy 
as Nelly in his caucus. He, as a prime minister, he could see that um, Corrine Wilson, who was much more traditional in attitudes and felt that you know a woman's place was in the home, would be an easier person to elevate to the Senate. So she got the first Senate seat. So Nelly then... The way you paint it is that, or maybe she painted it in there, that's an interesting topic as well, the way that she presented herself mm-hmm. to the world in her memoirs, just like Lucy Maud Montgomery paints it perhaps a brighter picture than maybe the real world offered. But she uh, basically said that she fell in love with her future mother-in-law and then sought out the son. What do you make of that? Oh, I think that Nellie's two volumes of memoir are very um, carefully uh, shaped to suit the McClung mythology. Um, I think she probably was extremely attracted to her mother-in-law, and she met her mother-in-law before she met Wes, her husband, just because her mother-in-law was such a contrast to her own mother. And she obviously wanted to be associated with her mother-in-law because her mother-in-law was prepared to sort of step outside conventional roles and... Uh, endorse the campaign that was at that point sweeping the prairies, which was the anti-alcohol campaign, the temperance movement. And here was something that Nellie could sort of, she could jump on this bandwagon and she could meet interesting people and she'd have the opportunity to speak in public and everything. So she, she loved this woman she met who was going to open those doors for her. I think in terms of sort of deciding she should then be her mother-in-law, I think that's Nellie speak for, you know, my life fell into place in a way that, you know, God was looking after me. I think it was sort of Nellie's way of shaping her narrative. Nellie was awfully good when she wrote her memoirs of only putting in the high spots. So she married Wes, who was a pharmacist. Yes. And he initially did very well, and they moved to Winnipeg which was a, a real hotbed of... It was, it was, a, it was a thriving, wealthy city. Multicultural. Multicultural, yeah. the Chicago of the North, huge optimism about its future. Winnipeg, it's hard now, even with the jets there, to think about Winnipeg 100 years ago because it was so much more a sort of blustering, broad-shouldered thug of a town than it is today. It produced uh, Tommy Douglas as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. It's interesting you used the word thug because he was a real fighter, mm-hmm. and yet he had this Christian desire to improve society and the plight of the, the poor. Was there any connection between those two? Nelly was attracted to the CCF and attracted to the kind of... Tommy, of course, is a little bit later Later, than her. There would have been a wide overlap of values, but she was a traditionalist in terms of thinking that um, you don't go off and start a splinter party because it's just going to weaken the main parties. Which is so fascinating when you look at the results of the last election. Oh, I know. Where the vote was split. Yeah. Pretty prescient. Well, I think that if Nelly was alive today, she would have stuck with the Liberal Party, Mm -hmm. for sure whatever she thought of the leader, because she would have been so horrified by what the Conservatives have done to her Canada. You're bringing it right up to the present there. Bringing it right (laughs) up to the present. So we're in Winnipeg, and she joins all sorts of women's groups to fight for equality. I guess the only parallel that we could draw 
to understand what it was like to be a woman back then is to look at Iran and Afghanistan. In fact, I have a, a sentence where I say, you know, for women today, you really do have to look at, as, as you say, countries like Saudi Arabia or Iran to imagine how constricted women's roles were. And I got a very unhappy email from a woman from Saudi Arabia saying, what are you talking about? We can go to university, we can, you know, there's sort of much more liberty than you seem to be implying. It's not all about veils. And I'm sorry, it's still about believing there's a fundamental inequality. It's a male attitude. Yes, mm -hmm. it's a male attitude, you know, that somehow women have to be dependent on the men in their lives, whether they're the fathers, brothers, or husbands. And you run through the list of rights that uh, women didn't have, particularly mm -hmm. in the years when Nellie was born in the late 19th century, sort of the right to own property, the right to alimony and support if uh, she had to leave her husband, uh, the right to have her children with her if uh, she was thrown out of the family home, no redress against uh, domestic violence, very few employment opportunities, almost no opportunities for post-secondary education. Maybe the women didn't have to wear the veil, but by today's standards, I mean, I love, often think, what would Nellie think if uh, she saw in July 2011 women, the young women walking around any university campus in shorts and uh, tank tops? I mean, she would be so shocked. And yet now, you know, that's part of women's rights. We can dress how we like. You can go topless. Well, in not in every in community. <laughs> <laughs> On U of O campus, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I thought you could, actually. I thought it was bottomless that was a problem. I think some communities but are... It's bottomless for everyone. Yes, that's yeah. true. Okay, so she's in Winnipeg. She joins these groups. But she also ties her cause to more mainstream concerns, and the big one is temperance movement and prohibition. And it's interesting, later on you mentioned that most, if not all, of her offspring have a problem with alcohol. Her four sons all became alcoholics. Yeah, which is so ironic, odd in a way. Was it in her family prior to that? It's a I genetic, have no idea. Do you think? I have no idea, and there were very good reasons in the late 19th century to be anti-alcohol. Whiskey on the prairies was cheaper than milk. Rates of um, alcoholism were stunningly high. I mean, it's just amazing how much public drunkenness there was. Mm. I, I'm actually, for another project, just reading court reports from Toronto in 1915. And every morning in the courts, you know, they were hauled up. Men who'd been, and women, who'd been completely plastered and making public nuisances of themselves in the streets. So they and were, beating up women, too. That's right. There were good reasons. So there is that public side of why uh, the temperance movement did take off. In terms of Nellie's private life, there's something we don't know about Wes McClung, her husband, and we don't know as much as, as a biographer I'd like to because Nellie's daughter burnt her papers. So there were obviously secrets there that went up in smoke. And Wes McClung, every now and then he sort of disappears from the story. He obviously had a breakdown at one point. And there's another point where they go off to stay in a Rocky Mountain resort, which sounds to me tremendously like rehab. There was obviously something he had... He had sort of some kind of issue that she never spoke about. And then I think in terms of her sons, 
first of all, they were growing up again, and this is sort of a bit later, the 20s and 30s, they were growing up in a period where people did drink, you know, three martinis before dinner. And what we call alcoholism now is a much stricter interpretation than 80 years ago. But also, I think that she must have been the most impossible woman to live with. A large personality who sort of lived her life in public and much as her children obviously admired her and her achievements a lot, I think sometimes they just sort of shrank from mm. the Nelly legend. They're kind of estranged yeah. in a way, weren't they? Well, actually, when I first arrived in Ottawa about 31 years ago, her youngest son, Mark McClung, was here. And I met him on several occasions, and he was a really sweet man. Rhodes Scholar. Yes, very smart, very thoughtful, alcoholic, it has to be said, but very proud of his mother. And the trouble is, I didn't know at the time enough mm. to ask him a little bit more about her, because at that time I didn't know anything about her. But after this book came out, I actually did get a couple of letters from people who said that their mothers had been friends with Nellie McClung. And they wrote to tell me that they remembered Nellie coming to their houses and how much as children they disliked her because um, she mm. sort of held court in their parlours. I'm speaking with uh, Charlotte Gray, who is the author of the biography of Nellie McClung. It's interesting that we talk about the husband and the family because, again, with Lucy Maud Montgomery, her husband had all sorts of depression mm. issues. I just wonder if the challenge of living with a, a woman who is larger than life. Did you talk to Jane Urquhart at all about her? Yes, uh, Jane's a friend of mine. But I, I don't think that either of us would put it in terms of these women drove their husbands to drink or depression. Madness, I think yeah. that's part of a completely different picture, which is we're still not talking about mental illness. We're mm. still not acknowledging how widespread it is. And particularly in <clears throat> L.M. Montgomery's day or Nellie McClung's, you know, the impulse was to completely cover it up, to never talk about it. It was seen as a moral oh, stain. Yeah. Stigma. Yeah. I think in, in both cases, uh, these were women who desperately needed to carve out a place for themselves. It may perhaps, perhaps have exacerbated their husband's problems, but uh, their husbands had deep-rooted problems. So... What would you say, then, was her finest hour? Nellie, the Parliament of Women in Winnipeg uh, at the end of 1914. Is it 1914 or 1913? But it's the moment when she is pressing the Premier to give women the vote. Roblin. She got, has gone to see him a couple of days earlier and watched as he made all these fatuous comments like, nice women don't want the vote, my wife doesn't want the vote, and nice women are much happier leaving it all to men. Or suffrage was supported only by short-haired women and long-haired men. Yes, you know, which is basically saying sort of a, only gays and lesbians. lesbians. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and she listened to him, but in, and she watched exactly how he strutted around. And then two days later, they put on this magnificent show at the theatre in Winnipeg, and uh, she plays the part of a female premier. It's flipped, isn't it? Yes. The, the men come, it's the women's parliament, and yeah. the men come with a barrel load of petitions saying, please can men have the vote? <laughs> and she uses all these arguments against the idea that men should have the vote, 
you know, like men are just so much happier mending fences on the prairies, and <laughs> yes. it's just going to lead Fixing to a lot things. of lot of domestic <laughs> disorder if you give men the vote. <laughs> and they'll and just get into wars. That's right. That's yeah. what's caused problems. And, of course, what's so clever about it is, first of all, it was very funny. In fact, it's said that half the cabinet went and couldn't <laughs> stop laughing, particularly with the imitation of their boss. But also, it was such an effective argument. Ridicule is, in many ways, more devastating than violence. The British suffrage... Your satire. And yes, yeah, the yes. British suffrage, suffrage uh, lobbyists were, uh, like the Pankhursts, went for violence and aggression. And the Canadians went for ridicule. Mm -hmm. And who got the vote first? The Canadians. And it's interesting, too, that the Western women uh, uh, were in the forefront. And you make the point here that Nellie had demonstrated in Manitoba, women in Western Canada had a far greater sense of entitlement than women in the cities of Central Canada. I just wonder why. Women in Central Canada very much followed the British model and sort of stuck to more conventional roles. On the prairies, all those lonely prairie farms, the families didn't survive unless both the husband and the wife sort of contributed their sweat equity to, mm -hmm. to the farm. You know, the men organizing the crops and harvests and the women raising kids, growing vegetables, providing making meals, bread. making yeah. all, all the sort of huge amount of, of domestic industry that the women did. And the men recognized that women were equal partners in this extraordinary venture of building a country. So it was, it was much about the men's attitude. Yes, it, because yeah. in fact, what, that's what, and she was very clever. She made uh, the suffrage movement into a big tent on the prairies. And it wasn't just about middle-class women. She also lobbied on behalf of the conditions that immigrant women were working in sweatshops. She also made it plain that she sympathized with anybody who was was poor and in many any ways deprived and so in fact i mean she had everybody on her side she had the winnipeg bus drivers she had farmers she had the editor of the grain growers gazette they all recognized you know that sort of if women were going to be co-equals in building the country they should be co-equals in having their voice heard I'd like to change gears and, and move over to Nellie as a writer, novelist. What I find interesting, and again, it hasn't really changed to any great extent, is, is the fact that she found some of her early success in the U.S., just like Lucy Maud Montgomery did. Now, I suppose it's just because that's where the money was. Absolutely. You talk about Lucy Maud Montgomery. I mean, I've also written about Susanna Moody in the 1830s. You know, there wasn't even a p publishing industry then, and she had to send all her manuscripts to England in the hope of getting published, and then they were published in the States. Fast forward 70 years to, or 50 years, to Canada of Lucy Maud Montgomery and Nellie McClung. Industry here was so tiny, you know, it was basically just the Ryerson Press, which had grown out of the Methodist uh, Press. Mm -hmm. and, and although there were a growing number of magazines, Canadians were reading American books in American magazines, so that's where you sent your, your work. And she had some success. Well, actually, her first novel, Sowing Seeds in Danny, which came out in 1908, same year as um, Anne of Green Gables, I was enchanted when I read it. Mm. it it's, it's a lovely book because there's a lot of humour in it. 
a lot of sort of recognizable prairie landscape, it, it sparkles. And it it's not overly sentimental. I think that's one of the criticisms. It's sentimental, but you know, so is Lucy Maud Montgomery. And it outsold Anne of Green Gables in the first few months. That actually, I have to say, was her high spot. While Ellen Montgomery got better and better, Nellie more and more used um, her fiction just as a vehicle for her politics. To preach. Yeah. But yes, so yeah. her novels just... I mean, I, I read them all, and they're very easy to read. She was popular as a novelist in her own day, but the characters just become mouthpieces for Nellie. You mentioned that she she listened and took notes from the stories of the various maids that she had to, to get that raw material. Yes. I mean, it, in many ways, she was a sort of good magazine journalist. Mm-hmm. She um, listened carefully and then sort of rushed into print. Or actually, not so much today a magazine journalist as a, a scriptwriter, any grinding social issue that she thought she could push into the public media, she would transform into what was the most uh, saleable literary product of the time. And then it was her novels. I mean, now I see, I know script writers who, you know, scan the newspapers every day to look for that story that you can... Uh, sort of shape into an episode of ER. And you couldn't make it up because That's it's so... Right. Martin Amos gets a lot of yes. the stuff from the yeah. sun. Moving from there, though, in you talking about copying real life, there was an accusation of uh, plagiarism from mm-hmm. Frederick Philip Grove. I just wonder how serious th- that was. I know she's sort of sloughed it off. Well, N- Nellie never made any secret of her admiration for Frederick Philip Grove and in fact told him that she'd had a copy of the book on her desk when she was writing a book in which she obviously did just lift a passage. More than one? or I think it was one particular passage and then lots of little phrases. Having seen and read many stories about plagiarism, there's no doubt she lifted this passage. In terms of little phrases, that's harder to really pinned down in that often uh, those little phrases or phrases are also in the ether mm-hmm. or they yes. just stick in your mind it's very hard when you have a, a sort of immensely popular figure like Nellie McClung a sort of bouncy this is all in the service of improving mankind optimist who's pretty ruthless and someone like Frederick Philip Grove who is an unsuccessful novelist and a very morose man who wasn't uh, getting the recognition that he felt he deserved, you know, and then sees this woman not borrowing his plots, but absolutely borrowing his words, which she shouldn't have. Mm. I'm not trying to defend her. Was it taken to any level? Like, no, no, he didn't sue. He certainly was furious and reproached and her and made, and rightfully so, yeah. 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 But on the other hand, had he been wildly successful and the same thing had happened, uh, would he have pursued it? I don't know. The, the family then moves to Edmonton, and she runs for office and wins a seat in the provincial legislature. Turns out to be a terrible politician. She hates it. But she's in opposition, right? Or yes, she, she yeah. thought she, she assumed she'd be a government minister. There's a total surprise election. Uh, the farm party forms the government, and she just realizes she's pretty marginal. Yeah. She represents Edmonton for a while in the provincial legislature, and then they move to Calgary. And, uh, she loses. Career, she loses. and then she loses yeah, she, because she it's not her forte it's not her yeah. she's a campaigner yeah. if you th- want to think of somebody who would remind you of Nellie McClung it's Elizabeth May 
the leader of the Green Party here, who actually did win her seat and is in the... The only one in the, in the party, yeah. And gets an extraordinary amount of airtime, yes. but he's so good on television. Mm. She has many of Nellie McClung's qualities. She's unfailingly cheerful, she's funny, she's never seen a microphone that she yeah. couldn't get in front of. And she's good with one-liners, which Nellie was. But she's on her own, and, that, and that's what would have suited Nellie. I just had a function last night, with, uh, and I don't usually hang out with 20 to 30-year-olds, but they were all going on about sustainability and working in the third world. And it just—it was almost, almost to the point where I, I just I couldn't believe all this altruism. Could you draw parallels between these types of movements? Um, well, I, in my own view, those people in the sort of generation of 20 and 30-year-olds it's not just a burning desire to work in humanitarian endeavors. It's a very definitely a rejection of the world in which they can't find their place within Canada. I mean, I have children in that age group, and they are pretty disappointed with the world they're inheriting in Canada. Mm. Uh, they don't like a, a world driven by commerce. And this is true of North America uh, generally, but um, where you know bankers get away with bankrupting everybody else and poor people lose their homes but those 20 30 year olds they're prepared to work for nothing in the third world but mm. they don't seem to be prepared to do the same here i i haven't really sort of sorted out yeah. in my own head what's going on but they're disappointed with their own country and not to end it on a, a, a negative note but you refer to nelly's disappointment in the fact that women didn't assume their their new status or embrace or take advantage of the new rights that they fought for. Yes, this is in the early 1920s. And to sort of return to where I began, which is you always have to see lives within the larger context. And in the 1920s, Canada was... There had been such incredible slaughter in the First World War. And so many... Young men or older men had come back broken by that war. Including um, her oldest son. Including her oldest son. Um, he committed suicide. Mm -hmm. There was a sense of in the crazy 20s, you know, let's just put everything behind us and enjoy life and drink cocktails and go to jazz clubs. And she, she'd brought, been brought up in such an incredibly Presbyterian uh, household that, you know, this was immoral by her standards. She thought this was incredibly frivolous. Uh, and she, she became a bit of a scold at that point. Mm. And she was disappointed that women didn't grab the opportunities available to them. But, you know, she, she continued fighting away. And I actually think that one of the most wonderful insights into Nellie's innate sense of justice was after the Second World War began. And she was arguing against the racist initiative to move Japanese Canadians away from uh, the West Coast and put them in grim internment camps in the interior. And there's Nellie, still fighting for justice, mm. still, you know, still determined that everybody should have equal rights, no matter what your gender, no matter what your race. I mean, I really, you know, she was by then nearly, nearly 70. I thought that was pretty splendid. She really had a drive that was sustained through her entire life. Yes. She, she never lost her moral compass. Just finally, what new meaning have you derived from her life that might be different from our 
traditional reading of, of her? Well, I don't think there's a new reading so much as a permanent, you know, just that sort of strong sense of the innate justice of equality between genders. But one thing I will say is that when I <clears throat> finished this book and Penguin, first of all, came up with a cover for the book, their first proposed cover was a picture of Nellie when she was probably in her 50s with grey hair and granny glasses. And it's one of the few pictures that, in fact, are around of Nellie. There aren't that many photographs of her. Nor um, recordings, incidentally, which is... Really tragic, Isn't it because, tragic because she had such a presence. That's right. It, it's just infuriating, when, especially when you think how many there are of Tommy Douglas, for instance. And I realized that that's everybody's image of Nellie as the sort of aging school teacher. And in fact, what really came through for me was what a live wire she was from year one and what an incredibly vibrant presence she, she must be. And so after I complained about the <laughs> first cover I, yeah. they, they changed it into this sort of one who I, I still find her too severe because although she did have that sort of Presbyterian streak in her she enjoyed life, she had an appetite for life. You find the cover too severe? Yes It's captured a, a certain liveliness there's a, almost a smile on her face and she's standing in a very proud arm in arm but the focus is on her Yes, she's and she, but very strong. Determined. And, and children peeking out, so, you know, she's speaking <laughs> for women and children. Yeah. So I like that. It's just that my Nellie is actually bellowing with laughter. This woman is still a bit grim. Well, again, perhaps it's because the world that she was fighting for hadn't really evolved or changed in the way that she'd hoped it would. Yes, she knew that there was still a long way to go. And it's funny, you know, one of the things I find interesting is that anybody who knows a little about Canadian history, if you ask them which women in Canadian politics uh, have been important, if they can name anybody, they'll say Nellie McClung. She herself would never have sort of claimed the solo spot for herself. I mean, we've talked about how she was an extrovert who liked the spotlight, but nonetheless, she knew you could only do achieve anything if you, it was a collective effort. And so that's why we have the famous five. She was one of five women. Can you name any of the other five women? No, it's Nellie we remember because she was such a great speaker and she had such a great fund of one-liners. And she's the one that's exuberant. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's what I think is not captured, actually, by the cover. One of, one of my favorite lines of hers is when she was electioneering in uh, Winnipeg in, in Manitoba in um, 1914 and people she was so such a great performer people actually paid to go to the uh, any event where Nellie was speaking and at one point somebody heckled and said uh, why should we give women the vote they gave the vote to women in Colorado and they started stuffing the ballot boxes and Nellie said, oh, well, you know, you can't blame women. After all, we've lived with men so long, we've picked up some of their funny little ways. I mean, it was such a sort of brilliant put-down. Immediately the audience was on her side. Well, it's a, it's a fun read. It, it's the public side, though, that we get. I guess the way I leave it is uh, I, I hope perhaps you do some more work on, on Nellie to give your take or speculation on the, on the private side, just... Uh, round out her character a bit. Uh, it's in there if you read carefully. 
But, you know, it's hard for a biographer when the daughter's burnt all the papers. <laughs> well, thanks very much for sharing your thoughts on this important Canadian, I won't say crusader. Well, yeah, maybe. crusader would be She's good. Faith. She, oh, yeah, no, Jeff faith was a huge part of her, her mm. uh, motivation. Thanks again. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Charlotte Gray, who is most recently the author of... Gold Diggers, Striking It Rich in the Klondike, which has just been optioned by the television company that makes The Good Wife. Wonderful. So for a short TV miniseries. Great. Yeah, it is. I'm very pleased. Thanks again. Thank you, Nigel. That was terrific. <laughs>